All right, so what are we going to do, Madison? I was going to say Zimmerman, and that would have been a really bad mistake because you have got married, and you are now Havilana. Are you used to that yet? Do you, do you sign it? Is it easy? Is it, is it good? You're still getting used to it. All right. So Maddie's going to read to us. She's got to get to the kids, but she's going to take us to the text, and then I'll tell you what we'll be doing over the next 10 weeks. All righty. We are reading from Acts 1, verse 1 through 5. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Fabulous. Thanks, Maddie. Go and enjoy the kids. All right, so what we've been doing is we started walking our way through the book of Acts. The Acts is the first book in the Scriptures written about the early church. Fabulous book, historically interesting, philosophically developing, sociologically evolving, and uh, we understand the church stumbling and stuttering its way forward. It did not have the Scriptures. It had the Jewish Bible, and so it had to make things up as it went. Um, and, uh, but we paused after four chapters because we felt we had rushed through the conversations around the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to spend some time, I and others who will teach, will open up the Scriptures and we will use the Holy Spirit verses in those four chapters. I'm going to cheat a little bit and dabble with chapter 5 so that we transition, we segue into uh, the continuing in the book of Acts. But we just want to talk about this incredible Holy Spirit. I was listening to Pete Hughes. He's a friend, part of a very famous British Hughes family. And uh, he was speaking on the subject of the Holy Spirit and he told this story. He said there was this young girl called Rihanna in one of the churches that he works with. And Rihanna was diagnosed with cancer in her back. Obviously there's great trauma with the pronouncement that this is a galloping cancer. It's one of grave concern, possibly life-threatening and so the church did as we did now with Eric and Lynn, but the church rallied around her over and over again, crying out to God for her healing. This is a recent story. One night she had a dream. And in her dream, she saw God call her to do the following. Go to a particular bookshop, the local Christ Christian bookshop. Go and buy a Bible. In the Bible, write James B., Wrap it up like a gift and put it in your purse, your bag, backpack. She goes to her pastor and she tells him the story. God gave me a dream. It sounds a little weird. It sounds a little crazy. I need to go to a particular bookshop. I need to buy a particular Bible. I need to write James B. in the front. I need to wrap it up as a gift and put it in my backpack, my bag. What do you think? He said, well, there's a probability that that's a little crazy, too much pizza, maybe a glass of wine, too many, but... What if it's God? So she does that. 
A day goes by, nothing. She carries the Bible around with her. Two days go by, nothing. Three days go by. Two weeks later, she has to go for a checkup. They're concerned about the cancer and the fact that it's galloping and they put her through the most strenuous, exhausting set of tests that take up the full day. Her doctor, Dr. Patel, invited in another doctor for a second opinion. Dr. Bradshaw came, looked at her, um, all of the test results. And after a day of exhausting, excruciating tests, he looked at her and he said, Rihanna, I don't know how to explain this. Do you wanna finish the story? But there's no evidence of any cancer in your body whatsoever. She jumped up and down. She was crying. She was leaping with joy. She was praising God. Dr. Patel turns to her and says, I can't believe this. Do you go to a church that believes in the power of prayer and the Holy Spirit healing? So do I. We have been praying for people to be healed and we have seen people healed. Dr. Bradshaw says, well, I'm definitely not a Christian and I definitely don't believe, but a few weeks ago, I had one of my patients go through the same traumatic experience only to be tested again and to be found clear of all cancer. And he said, I went home and said, God, I don't believe you exist, but if you exist, will you do that once more? She then feels empowered, does Rihanna, and she said, well, Dr. Bradshaw, can I be bold enough to ask you, what is your first name? Do you want to guess? James and his last name, Bradshaw. And she pulls the gift out of her purse and she gives it to him. She tells him the story. I was sleeping one night. I had a dream and in the dream, I was tasked to go and get a Bible and write in the front of the Bible, James B, to wrap it as a gift and to wait for the right moment. And I believe, Dr. Bradshaw, this gift is for you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's, in a myopic way, what we are leaning into here. It's how do we partner with God the Holy Spirit so that in the minutia of our everyday, the little steps we take, the little moments we experience, the traumas, the highs, the lows, where we are so present and so aware of God the Holy Spirit teaching, coaching, guiding, leading us, comforting us, healing us. This is not a theological journey primarily, although the title is The Theology and Practice of the Holy Spirit. We want to be theologically accurate and sound. But what we want of equal importance is that all of us see an increased sense of the power of God. A friend of mine was walking um, in South Africa last week, uh, just before Christmas, and there was a pastor and his wife from Macedonia, uh, originally Asia Minor, They'd been asking God to plant a church. And uh, so this friend of mine was walking, they were visiting South Africa and he was walking in front of him and suddenly he took his hand uh, into his pocket and he took it out and he took some money and he threw it on the ground in front of them. When I heard the story, I thought this is incredibly offensive. Why would you do something like that? And he looked at them with tears in his eyes as only he could. And he said, I believe God is saying he will go before you. And as you pick up this money in front of you, so I will provide in front of you. He sent me a copy of their text. They flew back to Macedonia to the place where they were planting. And a pastor in town contacted them and said, I want to pay your salary for the rest of this year. See, God the Holy Spirit is on about something. And you may be, Dr. Bradshaw, 
You may be, well, I'm not sure I believe all of this. And that's fine as we'll see in just a moment. But it's an invitation for us to engage in a more spirit-centered, spirit-led life. There will be language you'll be unfamiliar with. There will be things that we speak about easily because we've walked in it a long time. But for you, it might be really uncomfortable. But ultimately, Karl Barth, the German theologian philosopher said, you have to begin again at the beginning. The ever new start is the only way. And sometimes we just have to go back to the very beginning and say, what does this look like really? Is it possible that God could use someone just like me? Now, I'm enjoying Simon Ponsonby's book called God Inside Out. You got the slide for me? And in it, he says this. He said, theologians have described him, the Holy Spirit, as the Cinderella theology, the orphan doctrine of the theology, the dark side of the moon in Christian theology, the stealth weapon of the church. But here in this passage that I've highlighted today is this exquisite moment where Jesus is quite firm with them. They've eaten together. He has astounded them by His resurrection. They have touched the nail-scarred hands. They have felt the side where the spear went in. And then He says to them, and I can imagine a gentle, kind, but firm gaze as He looked around the room, one person at a time, and Jesus said to them, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Wait for the gift my Father promised that you, will, that you have heard me speak about. I love the message because Eugene Peterson writes it this way. As they met and ate meals together, he told them that they were on no account to leave Jerusalem. They were on no account, you'll see why in a moment, to leave Jerusalem, but you must wait. Now ponder for just a moment with me, if you will. Who was he speaking to? He was speaking to a bunch of Jewish Jesus followers he was speaking to mostly, we know from the text, they were unschooled and ordinary, just like us. I'm not schooled. I don't have seminary degrees and Bible college diplomas. I'm just like you. I just love Jesus a lot. And, and I love His church a lot. And, and I, like you, am on this adventure of faith to discover where God is taking us and what He wants to do. Like Peter, we are unschooled, ordinary men and women. But the promise is of a gift. It's an interesting word. Uh, I was thinking about this and thought of three examples quickly. Christmas time. Did Father Christmas bring you? Were, were you naughty or nice? It's so fun having grandkids again because you see their little faces, you know. Have I been naughty? Have I been nice? It's, it's kind of all back to deception and lies and mirrors, smoke and mirrors. You know what I'm saying? We, we say it with the love of Jesus and I will lie to you, my grandkid, that yes, there is a Santa and yes, there are stags and things, deers, what do you call them? Reindeers. Reindeers. <laughs> I'm really into this in a big way. <laughs> but, but I thought of us as V-Nuts. You know, you know what we love doing as gifts, although things are changing, but, but what we love doing is Without the person saying, this is what we want, we kind of have fun speculating and buying them and normally lots of gifts. Don't have to be expensive. We're not a, an expensive, extravagant family, but we're generous in our ideas. 
We think this will be good. In fact, the first Christmas we were here after we emigrated from South Africa, um, we were so tender about our kids not being with grandparents and cousins and uncles and aunties and the normal thing. I think we bought each kid about 20 gifts. And we thought, what were we doing? You know, This Christmas tree was laden with gifts, but we loved the creative story behind the gift well wrapped. Then Stu comes into the family. Now the Dooleys don't do that. Because you see what the Dooleys do is they get one gift each and they make it very clear what that one gift must be. It was, I was his secret Santa this year. And so I had to buy him a little knife for a lot of money. Blew my mind, I didn't quite get it. I mean, I won't tell you how much money, but it was a lot of money. And then when I looked at him putting it into his pocket, it was smaller than a matchbox. And I thought, that doesn't look right, but you know what? It's in your elf list, so that's what you're getting. One gift. I'm so used to many gifts. And then a friend of ours decided one year that her husband was just not looking buff enough. So her generous, kind Christmas gift to him was a whole home gym program. And we arrived just after he had opened his very extravagant gift as she was convincing him that convincing him this was really the right gift for him. And she was very convincing. He was not. The great moment of the exchange of gifts, she gave him the gift she wanted him to have, not the gift he necessarily wanted. But in Luke, it says, if then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Ask Him. Holy Spirit, give me more, give me dreams. I'm gonna buy a little book, put it next to my bed, because I want dreams. I'm gonna put a little journal in my, in, my pla- in my backpack because I want you to give me visions. I want you to give me names or pray for the sick or whatever it is that is extraordinary, out of the ordinary where you break in on my rather bland, boring life and do something exquisitely with me. So I thought, here are 120 people, petrified, intimidated, in awe of everything that's happened. Where would their Jewish mind have gone? And I want to suggest Two places. There's more, but two will be enough. You don't want me to give more than that. The first is creation. I I think that's where their mind would go. In Genesis chapter one, verse one, in the beginning, God, Elohim, it's a plural noun, created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light. The plural noun, God, Elohim. So it's the Father introduces Himself. Sorry, I love saying this, so forgive you if you've heard me say it a thousand times. Hi, my name is God and I'm an artist. I'm just so fascinated by that introduction. Of everything God could have said, He just wants us to, why do we do it like this? Is it just because we want to be quirky or weird or strange? No, I do like having fun. But because we want Jesus to be front and centre. We want Jesus to be the full focus of what we do, not a stage or a pulpit or a podium. We want Jesus and the table that He gave us as the gift of transformed life to remind us every time we gather, Jesus is the one whom we adore and the work of the Holy Spirit continues around that. Let us, plural, make man in our image according to our likeness. Now the whole idea of the Trinity is so 
foreign to us. Look at the quote from C.S. Lewis. <coughs> Can I just have my water bottle, please, my love? If Christianity was something we were to make up, of course we would make it easier, but it's not. We cannot compete, thank you, in the simplicity with people who invent religions. People who invent religions have to make it simple so people can understand it. God decides to confuse us with one God, three personalities, one essence, three, three uh, personality persons who work out this full and glorious oneness. But it's not. We cannot compete in simplicity with people who are inventing religions. I know it's confusing for you as it is for me. We who are dealing with fact, of course, anyone can be simple if he does not have facts to bother about. Listen to what theologian John Jefferson Davis says. I love this. And there's a great quote after that. So forgive me for nerding out for just a moment. The one true and living God, almighty maker of heaven and earth, exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as three distinct but separate divine persons, here it comes, who equally share the divine nature of essence, existing eternally in holy, loving, joyous, harmonious, glorious relationships. I cannot imagine, forgive my imagination if it transcends your theology, and maybe I'm wrong, but I can only imagine Jesus being resurrected. He is hanging out with his buds, high fives them, ascends on high, and the doors of heaven open, forgive the metaphor and the imagery, and he walks in and the Father just runs to him and hugs him and holds him because the last time the Father heard his voice is, why have you forsaken me? If Jesus can say that, so can you, so can I. And they hug and they hold and with a great cacophony of angelic voices worshiping together with all the divine instrumentations, they are dancing together because the prophet tells us God rejoices over us with singing. He is singing, the, the angelic hosts are singing, Jesus is singing and then Jesus says, hey, the Holy Spirit's down there and they peep over the balcony of heaven and say, there he is, there he is, there he is. This incredible joyous, delightful, harmonious relationship being lived out. Darren Johnson writes in a book called The Trinity. Look at that sentence I've underlined. At the center of the universe is a relationship. Not a religion, not a set of philosophies, thoughts or ideas. It's a glorious relationship. This relationship, he says, has always been and will always be out of relationship we were made, for relationship we were made. Out of relationship we were redeemed. For relationship we were redeemed. This is kind of a bit nerdy, huh? But this affirmation lies at the heart of the Christian faith and therefore at the heart of the gospel, the Lord is one, in some way, a community and a fellowship. My dear friend, I know some of you doubt. I know for some of you the very nature of Christianity and maybe your expression and how you've lived it and what people have imposed upon you has racked you with, with, with anger and, 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 and anguish and shame and guilt, feeling like you're always falling short of some invisible line, no one clearly divine fine for you, but you're always just less than that. But when I look at this, I'm invited into a relationship the eternal God invites me 
into a relationship with him. And it gets better. Now, you can't preach a message like this without quoting Tim Mackey Bible Project. You know what I'm saying? I mean, he's the, he's the, the period point on all conversations like this, so let's hit it. So he says, he says this, um, the, the, the language of what the earth was at that point was wild and waste. And then you have to quote Eugene Peterson because he is always so full of poetry. He says, first this, God created the heavens and the earth. All you see, all you don't see. God, earth was a soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. God's spirit brooded like a bird above a watery abyss. Now listen to what Tamaki goes on to say. Without purpose and without order. And dear friend, that's where the Holy Spirit is the action word of the LOM. You don't have purpose? Your life is chaos? That's where the Holy Spirit thrives. It's not stepping away from Him that brings order. It's stepping into Him. It's not stepping away from Him because I don't know what I'm doing with my life and it's just one glorious circle of implosion after another. It's stepping into Him. And then listen to this glorious sentence. The Spirit was hovering. Ruach Elohim was ready to bring order so that life can flourish. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He brings order so that our life can flourish. Meryl's birthday is the 1st of January. And part of my practice every morning is to say, good morning, Father, and then I say thank you, and I write down the things that I'm grateful for in that moment. And not to embarrass her, but I find myself filling up a page very quickly of all the things that I love about her, very aware of our limitations, very aware of our weaknesses, very aware of the mistakes we've made in our marriage. But you see, where the Holy Spirit is invited in, what does it say there? Life can flourish. Not life gets rules, regulations. Not life gets morals and high standards. And No, life can flourish like a flower in the right ecosystem. In fact, Peter, when he preaches his first message, He says, the Father is the architect. God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. The Son is the great evangelium. He's the one who brings redemption. He's the man from Nazareth who was accredited to you by God, sorry, to you by miracles, wonders and signs. And the Holy Spirit, well, he's been poured out on what you see and hear. I think as I transition into my next point, I think their minds went back to creation and said, is that the gift? The one who will come and bring order and bring a life of flourishing? Is that the gift? Says Peter Peter with his gnarly hands as a fisherman who's known the rope in the heat of the sun. Is that the gift? Says Levi, whose hands were filled with the stains of taking too many taxes and abusing his own people, as he looked down and he said, is that the gift that I can flourish and that God can bring divine order into my life? The second thing I wanna say, and I won't be long, is that promise Jesus made in John 14, 6. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, a comforter, an advocate, an intercessor, a counselor, a strengthener, a standby, to be with you forever. Isn't that amazing? Who are you, Holy Spirit? You are here. Who are you? 
Well, right now, son, I'm, to Sarah, I'm a comforter because her mum's dying and, and, and she really needs me to comfort her. So, so who are you, Holy Spirit? Well, I'm the advocate for John because he's facing a very unjust work environment and he needs me to be there and to advocate on, on his behalf. Who are you, Holy Spirit? Well, you know, for Kai, I, I, I'm the intercessor. Because it says when Kai doesn't know how to pray anymore, the Holy Spirit intercedes on her in his behalf with groans and utterances. That's who I am to Kai because that's what Kai needs right now. And to Stephanie, well, I'm her counsellor because she's got questions she can't answer. She's living with a bruised soul and being abused from when she was young. She doesn't know what to do with all these conflicting traumas. You see, son, I am her counsellor right now. And to Eric, I'm his strengthener. He's given his all, poured out like a drink offering. I've got nothing left. Oh, but I'm your strengthener, Eric, says the Holy Spirit, because the word comforter, are you still with me? The word comforter comes from the Greek word parakletos. We're kind of familiar with paraclete. I think we, many of us, if you've been in the church for any period of time, you know what that is, but... From this website that does, that specializes in biblical language, I quote, the New Testament Greek word is composed of two commonly used words, para, which means alongside of, like parallel lines, or, or kalio, kalio, which means to call. Brought together, they make one word, which literally means someone called alongside of another. So not only is the Holy Spirit the great creator partnering with the Father and the Son, but he's also the great comforter. He will be what you need him to be in that moment. Now it's obvious. If Jesus says, I'm sending you a comforter, guess what? You're probably gonna need some comforting. Have you ever had that? Has the Holy Spirit ever comforted you? Have you ever sat under a tree or on the beach or alone in your room and the, the lights are out and and you have nowhere to turn. You, you, your mind is racing, it's friend and foe. Your heart is colliding with its own thoughts and feelings. Friends have betrayed you, isolated you, left you. And the Holy Spirit comes and comes into the room. And it's not so much the words He says, although He says them because He's the instructor, but it's the presence He brings, one of peace and one of order. And the definite certainty it will be okay. Or... I am here with you, or I will walk with you. Isn't that someone worth meeting? Isn't that someone worth journeying with? If we need a comforter, it means we are in discomfort. That means it's when our humanity says no. I have one more quote for you in the story. This quote is from a Clarence Exposition commentary. And it says, the prohibition, remember I said, was started with do not leave Jerusalem. We're circling back to it. The prohibition against leaving Jerusalem implies that they would have done so if left to themselves. The prohibition against leaving Jerusalem implies that they would have done so if left to themselves, And it would have been small wonder if they had been eager to hurry back to the quiet of Galilee, their home, and to shake from their feet the dust of the city where their Lord had been slain. 
I was prepping, we were actually away with, with friends for a few days up in Santa Barbara. And I was just mulling over this message. Some of it, much of it is just brewing inside of my heart, really, more so than even words on, on a page. And I remembered Peter, and, and, and I remembered, for those of you who don't know, he was one of Jesus' close buds. He was one of the apostles, disciples who walked with Jesus. And the night that Jesus was arrested, he showed his extravagant, uncontrolled exuberance. He pulled his knife, kind of crocodile dundee. You call that a knife? This is a knife. He pulled the knife and he cut the servant of the high priest's ear off. I'm gonna do whatever to protect my Lord. You're not gonna take my Lord in the insensitivity of a life of disobedience. And Jesus put the ear back and he said, Peter, it's not that time. And I'm sure the other disciples looked at him pretty impressed, saying, dude, you stood up then, man. Oh, 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 you know, you gave it to that high priest servant. But then Jesus had said to him, you will deny me. So from the man who carried such rage and anger and aggression, the next time we hear him and we see him in this great redemption narrative, please listen carefully. A little bitty servant girl comes to him. And she said, aren't you a Galilean? Aren't you with that guy who's been detained? And Peter at first is marginally agitated, thinking he can just disappear into the crowd. And he just fobs her off and says, absolutely not, as he disappears. But a second one asks him again. And this time he's more agitated as we tend to get. And, and some of the, 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 the language of the text is he cussed, he F-bombed her. He said, you, what are you talking about? The future rests on the shoulders of a man who F-bombed his way in front of a little servant girl. And he hears it again. And this time his mild agitation has now led to resentment and anger. And he screams with aggression, I do not know him. What don't you get? It wasn't a nice sanitized moment. It wasn't a hallmark moment. It was a moment of rage, of cussing, cursing. And the Jewish culture, three is a definitive number which means it's completion, it's over now. And so he has by his own culture and by the announcement of Jesus, he has definitively, completely and utterly denied ever knowing, ever walking, ever partnering with Christ. He could not have been more definitive. And then what does he do? He goes home. Have you ever found the Christian faith too hard? Have you ever thought to yourself, this is just not worth it. I can't do this. I'm done. I'm going back to the place which is familiar and safe and known and controlled. I'm going fishing, he said, boys. If you wanna come with, you're welcome to, but I'm done. I'm done with this stuff. I thought he was my redeemer. He wasn't. I tried to protect him and he rebuked me. What he couldn't say is, I denied him three times. 
And dear friends, there is a moment for every one of us where we desire to go back to the familiar, the safe, the controlled, the known. But Jesus meets him there. Isn't the story beautiful? The story is beautiful because Peter goes fishing, but in the irony and humor of God, catches nothing. Catches nothing. It's Jesus who has to stand on the beach. Hey! Hey! On the right! Throw your net out on the right! And they threw their nets on the right. 153 fish. <laughs> Why did they count them? I don't know. They're so jolly slippery and slimy, you know. Did I count those four? You know, what about those seven? 153 fish that they dragged the net. It said Peter was so excited, the one who cut off the disciple's ear, the one who cussed out the servant girl, is so excited, he lifts up his robe and he jumps off the boat. And as he does it, he thinks, what on earth am I doing? The guy I denied is standing over there. And he goes not towards Jesus, but goes off to the side. And after the barbecue, Jesus sidles up to him. He says, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me with the kind of sacrificial love that I will lay my life down for you kind of love? Will you love me with that? And Peter looks, I don't even know if he looked at him and his answer is interesting. He says, I will filio love you. See, I wanna put myself first. So, so I love you in kind of a friendship kind of way. And so Jesus says to him, go and feed my sheep. That little affirmation was enough to commission him. You go feed my sheep, Peter, or my lambs. He says it a second time because Peter denied him three times. He asks him a second time, undoing the definitive closure of denial. Do you agape me? Do you love me with that kind of sacrificial love where you put me first? Oh Lord, you know I fully love you. I love you but I love myself first. We're going to feed my sheep. This faltering, failing, fickle kind of love was enough for Jesus to work with. I'm quoting Simon Ponsonby. See, you don't have to be perfect and guarantee that you will never let him down again. All that you have to do is say, I love you with this honest kind of love. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the denier in front of three little girls is the one who stands up in Acts chapter one before 120 people. No one asked him to. No one commissioned him to. But the one who was intimidated by the few now stood up in front of the many and said, it's time that we appoint fresh leaders. And then if that was not enough, the Holy Spirit... The wind of the Spirit came, the Ruach, the breath of God came upon him. And the fire of God as a fire settled on his head and Peter got up in front of 3,000 curious skeptics and he preached the first message, a message that's been exegeted and pulled apart by more scholars than any other. Who was he? A few weeks ago he said, I don't, he know you. 
But a man who submitted himself to the working of the Holy Spirit, the man who was filled with the Holy Spirit was dramatically transformed into one who stood up in front of 3,000 people and proclaimed Jesus is the Christ. Sam Storm, great theologian, thinker, pastor said, the Holy Spirit fills and empowers us. The Holy Spirit empowers God's people to boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel. When Peter was asked by what power the lame man was healed, we read that Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, that's the invitation. Are you, Rihanna? Are you the one with a condition that can't be healed? Are you the one that God wants us to rally around and pray for with persistence and perseverance, trusting that God will heal you? Are you James Bradshaw? And God has a Bible with your name inside to tell you he is there. Are you Peter? The only language you've been able to describe Jesus is sailor language. We're coming to the table. And I want to ask three things of us as we do. One, God, Holy Spirit, Ruach Elohim, I want a hunger for more of you. I don't know what that means. I want a hunger for more of you. If those stories are real and true, I want them to be mine. Secondly, I don't want to run back. I don't want to go back to the familiar and the safe and the known and the predictable and the controllable. I don't want to go back. My soul cries for that. I dearly, dearly want that. This Jesus thing is just too hard. I want to go back to Galilee. I want to go fishing. I want to be lost on the water. I want to be away from all the pressure where I can just be me. Do not leave Jerusalem. And will you allow the Spirit to transform you during this time? The one who F-bombed a little girl to the one who got up and proclaimed the great evangelium, the first evangelistic message. Will you bow your heads with me, please?